Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. Today, Easter, marks the anniversary of the starting of Calvary Limerick. We had our first service on Easter Sunday last year. I don't know if you can cast your mind back that far. It's on the podcast anyway. But the sermon that Easter Sunday took a story from the day Jesus rose from the dead and used it to glimpse at the core of who we are, what we believe, and what we do as a church and as Christians. We looked at the story of two disciples on the road to Emmaus, as they meet Jesus. That sermon was called Glimpsing Our Core. Today I've called this sermon Affirming Our Core. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to take another story from Resurrection Sunday, the day Jesus rose, and then also a week later because the second half of this story occurs a week after Jesus rises from the dead. So we're going to be in John chapter 20 verses 19 to 31. This day, Resurrection Sunday, is the key date in our Christian calendar. God tells us not to esteem one day above another, and that's something that we believe as Christians. But it is a day that helps us to remember once a year, and then every time as well that we meet together to take communion. We have a good practice of remembering the Lord's death and his resurrection and what it means for us. But sadly, doing something regularly, really regularly, like having an Easter service once a year, where we interrupt our normal schedule of events to focus on this part of the Bible, on this particular story, it can become stale, it can become normal, and it can become boring. Personally, as a speaker, I find Christmas and Easter the hardest times of year to prepare sermons for. And so that's kind of why I'm recording it, because I prepared a sermon, and even though we've cancelled our service, um, yeah, the sermon was there, so... I thought I'd record it and put it out and so people could be able to listen to God's word and learn from God's word and learn a bit about what Calvary Limerick is even when we don't have a service. So yeah, they're the hardest sermons to prepare for because how do you say something that people haven't heard a million times before? How do you keep yourself, how do I keep myself interested, let alone anybody else? And I think that's unfortunate because today, Easter, really should be a celebration. Death was arrested and my life, your life, really began because of this day. So as we come to talking about the Easter story, let's remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 55, which says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death and the victory of death are gone because of Easter. This passage that we're going to look at happens right after Jesus rose from the dead. Well, not right after. Same day. I'm sure you know the story by now. Where we were the last time we were together. Jesus and the disciples were in the upper room sharing the Passover together. Jesus spoke of his death and the new covenant in his blood, which that death would make available to us. And then he gave the disciples and he gave us the Lord's Supper or communion. And since then, since that part of the story, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to teach his disciples further and pray. 
This is where he prayed and it was like sweat, like drops of blood came. And the disciples also fell asleep. And so after three hours, three times the disciples falling asleep, um, three hours of prayer, Judas came and he kissed Jesus, identifying him to the guards. And so he was arrested and stood trial before the Jewish leaders and then before Pontius Pilate and then Herod. Then he was whipped, he was taken, he was hung on the cross and he died. That was Friday. And then Sunday he arose. The ladies went to the tomb and found it empty and were told he rose by angels. Mary, not his mother, Mary Magdalene, stayed and met Jesus, first mistaking him for a gardener. Then he told Mary to go and tell the disciples that he is alive. She told Peter and John and they ran to the tomb. John believed but Peter doubted. Meanwhile, two disciples were heading out of Jerusalem in the direction of Emmaus when they met another traveller. He spoke to them and as he was about to eat with them, they recognised who he was, Jesus, and he disappeared from before their eyes. And so that brings us to where we are now. It's late on that very first Easter Sunday. Let's read John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to, them, to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these that are written, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray before we look at this. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what this, um, this day means to us. This day that celebrates the day that Jesus rose from the dead that we can look back and that we can see the wonderful grace and mercy and love of our Lord for us. And that we can also look forward as well to a day when we will spend um, eternity in a paradise with him, like he said to the thief on the cross. And God, even though we're not meeting today, I pray that you would um, be with us, Lord, wherever we are, 
that you would cause our minds to think of you and to think of what you've done and that you would just teach us from your word and from one another as we fellowship together as we meet together whatever it is lord we just thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that are seen so so clearly when we think about easter amen so the disciples well most of them are together in a locked room somewhere in jerusalem maybe the same place that they had the last supper it's probable that what's happening happening just before the text is that the two lads from Emmaus have just come back to the other disciples and are telling them that they have seen and spent time with and even been taught from the Bible uh, with the Lord. The room that the disciples are in is locked and Jesus comes and stands among them in this locked room. The ESV study Bible spends a few words talking about how the emphasis in these passages is that Jesus was back in the flesh so that it's unlikely that Jesus just appeared in the room, but maybe miraculously walked through the locked door. While it's possible, I think, that the language used about Jesus post his resurrection is yes, physical, he can be touched, he walks, he stands, he eats, but it seems to be different. He seems to appear and disappear a little. In Luke's account of the first half of our passage today, he records what they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. That's Luke 24, 37. Now it's very possible that if you saw a man you know was dead walking in your front door that you might think you were seeing a ghost. But we aren't told in this passage that the two disciples, yeah, that the two disciples that had already seen Jesus alive corrected the others. So they were there and they would have said, no, that's not a ghost, that's Jesus, we've been with him. Probably all of them were in the room, were startled. Even the two disciples, they were startled and they all thought they were seeing a spirit. But why would that be? Perhaps because Jesus appeared inside the locked room. What I think, I think it's the only thing that makes sense in the context. If he came in through the door and the door opened, they would be startled that somebody come in but not necessarily think it was a ghost. If he'd knocked on the door, and they were locked inside for fear they might be found and killed as he had been. The exchange between them would have happened through the locked door. He would have had to convince them that he was Jesus on the other side of the door before they let him in. So I think Jesus appearing in the room both times that it's mentioned in this passage is the correct understanding. For us, seeing the enhanced abilities of Christ in his resurrection body is a comfort and an encouragement. One day we will be like him. We'll have resurrection bodies if we're believers in his gospel and reliant on his grace. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the resurrection body we will have. He makes sure to let his readers know that we will have the same body. There will be a continuation between our, our body, not the same body as Jesus, but the same body as we have now. Um, there will be continuation between our body now and our body then. But they will also be different as different as a seed is from the plant it becomes. You can see an acorn and know that it will become an oak tree. And you can see an oak tree and know that it was once an acorn. There's continuation between the two of them, but they're also vastly different from one another. So when we read something exciting about what Jesus did in his new resurrection body, it should excite us and remind us that someday we will be with him and we too will share in having a resurrection body like his. 
the disciples know were hiding in fear of the Jewish leaders and what they might do to them. I wonder how often are we like that? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about us being the light of the world. He basically says that if you went out and you bought a lamp, there's a lamp right here, you wouldn't hide it under a blanket. Not least of all because that's stupid and it could set your house on fire. And even more so in Jesus' day when lamps were basically just flames. But also because a light is designed to light things. To bring an end to darkness and to help you and to help others to see. So buying a lamp and putting it under a blanket or buying a light bulb and leaving it in the box, that's probably a modern equivalent. That's just a waste of money. The disciples here are wasting their lives. They're hiding away when they have the best news of all. Life-changing news. And we do the same. We hide the fact that we're believers from people. We don't share the good news like we could or like we should. And usually that's because of some form of fear. But fear has no place in the Christian life. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18 tells us. If there's fear in your life, and I'm sure there is because I know there's fear in mine, it's like a symptom. It shows us that we haven't gotten to know God's love, mercy, grace, and kindness in that area yet. Because if we knew the love of God, we wouldn't know the paralysis of fear. And I can say that, that confidently from personal experiences, but even more so from the testimony of the church throughout history. As men and women who love Jesus have walked into the scariest situations possible and have done it bravely and without fear because their focus was on the love of the Lord for them and their love in return toward him. Christian, there's no need to hide. So the disciples are in the locked room and Jesus comes among them and he wishes them peace. And you'll see it isn't just once that he says it. He says it in verse 19, verse 21 and verse 26. Probably the word he says was shalom or the Greek equivalent, which I'm going to try and pronounce in butcher, like Irene or Irene. And we don't have time to look too deeply into those. But there's a video that the Bible Project did on the meaning of Shalom, which you can YouTube later. Shalom basically refers to a multitude of things being in harmony or being complete. So a wall can be Shalom. Your property can be Shalom. You can be Shalom. So that is what Jesus pronounces for his disciples and what he offers you through his death on the cross and his resurrection. But notice something here. When Jesus isn't with the disciples, they're scared and worried and fearing for their lives. But when he's among them again, he brings peace, wholeness and completion to them. He does the same thing with us. Without him, we're in a state of conflict with ourselves, with others and most importantly with God. When Jesus comes into our lives, he changes everything for us. First, he makes us right with God. He completes and he perfects the relationship between you and the Father. And that happens immediately and for eternity, the moment we truly believe in him and are born again. Then over time, the relationships with others and with ourselves begin experiencing shalom. And one day, in the ever nearing future, he will bring shalom to the whole earth. And so our relationship with the earth will be one of perfect shalom. No exploitation, no global warming. And so that brings us to the first affirmation of our cores as a church. That's Christ is central. He is the center 
of every meeting we have. He's the centre of this meeting with the disciples. He is the centre of our faith. He is the centre of our relationship with God. He is the centre of our relationship with others. He is the centre of our peace. He is the centre of our shalom. And he's the centre of our church. If we as the church were to lose sight of the centrality of Christ in our meetings, our fellowship, our conversations, our lives, we would become a joke. If you or I as a Christian were to lose sight of the centrality of Christ in our faith, in our lives and in our days, we would become a pitiful sight. So let's keep him the centre. Paul, possibly, who wrote Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, said that we should be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, as Hebrews 12 verse 2. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus is central. The next thing Jesus does is show the disciples his wounds. He showed them his hands and his side, and it says then the disciples were glad. We often give Thomas a hard time in the second part of the passage that we're looking at today. Jesus comes specifically to him, and we often call him Doubting Thomas. But see verse 20, none of the other disciples were really any better. They had to see Jesus' wounds to believe it was him. But it was him, and when they saw the wounds they were glad and they believed that he truly was among them. He was there in the flesh. And that's the main point of our sermon today. Even as we see the Calvary Limer cores that we find in this passage, we need not to miss the main point. And I believe the main point is that we can trust Jesus. He was there among them. He is exactly who he said to the disciples he was the whole time he was with them. He is exactly who he says he is today too. For Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He won't let you down. His promises are sure. His grace is enough. His power is mighty and available to you. His presence is assured when you are his disciple. His spirit is the seal of your salvation, the down payment that he's coming to take you to be with him someday. You can trust him, and that's the main point. Now you might be sitting there right now and you're thinking, yeah, all well and good for you to say, Wavy, but you don't know what I'm going through. Perhaps, but I know Jesus, and I know you can trust him. The problem doesn't lie with him. It may be that you need to be like the man in Mark chapter 9. His boy was possessed, and the disciples couldn't drive out the evil spirit. So when Jesus came, he asked Jesus to heal his son, if he could. And Jesus said that all things were possible for the one who believes. And the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes we're like that. A mountain seems too big even for God to overcome. And that's often because we place the limitations that we have onto God. It's hard for us, so we think it must also be hard for God. But that's not the case. He is all powerful and he can be trusted. Once the disciples are happy that it's really Jesus, once they know who he is and they believe, then Jesus tells them that he's sending them out. This verse is one of the passages that makes up the Great Commission. And the more famous one is the one in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus said he's sending them into all the world to make disciples of all peoples. And so that's a second of our cores. We want to be people who are running to Limerick with the Gospel. 
because we know it's good news and we know that they need it. It's often the case that we don't feel like running with the gospel. I could be walking up to houses on Wednesdays hoping nobody's out in their garden. But really, if we believe the gospel is true, it should make us want other people to know it. Notice that Jesus doesn't just send them out. He breathes the Holy Spirit onto them. He doesn't just commission the work. He also provides the provision for the work. There's two Calvary Limerick cores there. One that we talked about in our Easter sermon last year and one that we didn't. So let's affirm the one that we did look at last year again. And that's that we are a grace-focused community. Jesus provides the commission of what we are to do, how we are to live, but he also provides the provision. He sent the Spirit to empower us, and that's grace. Grace is the lifeblood of the Christian. It's what saves us, remakes us, empowers us, teaches us, and carries us to eternal glory. Grace means we bear one another's burdens, love one another, care for one another, encourage and exhort one another, lovingly correct one another, pray for one another, and share our lives with one another. That's what a grace-focused community is. And Jesus is the one who made that possible. But there's a second core in that sentence. Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them. So a Calvary Limerick core is that we are a Holy Spirit-guided and empowered community. The Holy Spirit is as active today as he was in Jesus' day and in the book of Acts. When the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit in relation to us, there's three different Greek words that it uses. A lot of Greek in this sermon. The first is para. This means with. So you'll remember, or maybe you won't, so I'll remind you, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is convicting the world. I think this might have been our Christmas sermon. So that when the Holy Spirit is para, or with you, he is convicting you of sin, he's convicting you of righteousness, and he's convicting you of judgment. But you have not yet believed. So he has not come to dwell in your life and your heart. That's the second Greek word that the Bible uses, which is en, en, which just means in, not en. He is in you. I think that's what happened here, is that the Holy Spirit was now in the disciples when Jesus breathed on them. But there's one more word in the Greek, one further experience of the Spirit, and it's denoted by the Greek word epi, which means upon. The Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, which is what we see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Now, it's biblical to say there's such thing as the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and that it's distinct from the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within you, though both could happen simultaneously. But it's not biblical to say that the sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon you is speaking in tongues. Nor, in my opinion, do I think it's biblical to say that the Holy Spirit comes upon you once and stays upon you forever. It seems to be special times of anointing that the Spirit comes upon people. For example, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the disciples all spoke different languages of the different nationalities that were present in Jerusalem that day, but they didn't keep on speaking them. The apostles spoke with God's authority and acted in God's authority, but not all the time. Peter was actually rebuked by Paul when he visited Antioch, where Paul was kind of in leadership, because Peter's actions were countering the gospel that he was professing with his mouth. So I think epi is a biblical experience, but I don't agree in the slightest with what both arms of the church have done with it. Some deny that it happens at all and say the Holy Spirit doesn't move like he did 
in the time of Acts. And so tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge and wisdom, miracles, healings, all of those have stopped. I think that's very hard to prove biblically. Second, I disagree with the other arm of the church who have made it as important as conversion and see speaking in tongues as a sign of genuine faith and talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit all the time. The truth, as it usually does, lies somewhere in the middle, at least in my opinion. And I think my opinion is based on biblical uh, study. And so Calvary Limerick is a church guided by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the seventh, which is not an order of importance, just an order of which I've said them, the seventh Calvary Limerick core. So we come to verse 23, and it's a confusing one. It seems to be saying to us when we first read it, that the power of forgiveness is in our hands. If we forgive someone, they're forgiven, but if we don't forgive them, if that forgiveness is withheld by us, believers, then they're not counted forgiven by God. But that can't be what it's saying. You could also word it, if you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven. In that tense, which is what the original is in, that means something has happened in the past, their forgiveness, that has consequences today. The ESV Study Bible says, the idea is not that individual Christians or churches have authority on their own to forgive or not forgive people, but rather that as the church proclaims the gospel, message of forgiveness of sins in the power of the Holy Spirit. It proclaims that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven and that those who do not believe in him do not have their sins forgiven, which simply reflects what God has done in heaven already. So the account that John gives us now jumps forward in time and tells us that Thomas, one of the eleven, Judas is dead at this point so there aren't twelve at the moment, they aren't the twelve, they're the eleven, Thomas was not with them when Jesus appeared. Where was he? We have no idea, and there's no point in us speculating. All we know that is he was somewhere else. But the other disciples tell him that they have seen the Lord. The reports he has probably heard that Jesus was alive again, they're true. And they've seen him with their own eyes, and they believe. It's that running to Limerick core again. They weren't afraid to tell him the truth, Tell him that Jesus really was alive, but Thomas still has his doubts, like the other disciples did before they saw Jesus, before they saw his wounds for themselves. But Thomas goes a step further, he says he wants to actually touch them. Thomas doubted that Jesus was alive, as did all the other disciples, and I think doubts are a part of life. You should never allow yourself to believe that you're a failure because of a doubt. Satan loves to use things against us especially our doubts. He might even try to amplify them, bring us to questioning, from questioning a small aspect of faith to questioning everything about our lives with Christ. He might also use them to condemn you. You might find yourself thinking, what kind of Christian am I that I don't believe whatever it is? I think there are three big doubts that we deal with today. The first is whether Jesus really loves us. That can come from a number of origins, bad things happening in our lives our own sin and seeing the reality of right before our faces. Sometimes the way people have treated us now or in the past causes us to doubt whether anybody could love us. And the second doubt is whether God can really look after us. Again, the origins of this doubt might be financial difficulty, losing a job, something about the future having to change, 
things we didn't expect to happen happening, the loss of a friendship, an illness we have or a loved one faces. And then the third type of doubt is about ourselves. We doubt if we're the person for the job. We doubt if we can serve God as he wants. We doubt if we're good enough. I think those are a normal part of the walk of faith. But again, they're like a symptom. When you have a cough, you can surmise that you might have a virus. You might need an antibiotic. If you have doubts, they're supposed to point you to something as well. And though doubts, they're not an illness, don't get me wrong there. It's not an illness, but they can lead to a destruction of your peace, your joy, your relationship with the Lord, if they aren't seen as the symptoms that they are. Doubts should cause us to look to the Lord, to find the answers, to search the scripture, to spend time in prayer, to seek wise counsel from fellow believers. But often it makes us isolate ourselves. We withdraw instead of engaging, and that's not good. God is the God of grace. In the Bible, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13. Notice where the disciples are again. See in verse 26, they're back in the locked room. They saw Jesus alive just a week before, but it did nothing to stop them living in fear. Like doubt, fear is another of those things that's a normal part of our life. And like doubt, although it's normal, it isn't something we should allow to control us or remain for long periods of time. There are a lot of things we can be afraid of today. Paying the bills, facing the future, ill health, the well-being of those we love, rejection because of our faith, what's happening in the world or what's happening in Ireland these days, uncertainty that we will be able to overcome our sin in our lives, the fear of missing out on God's calling for us and entering into all that he has, sometimes fear of where the next dinner is going to come from, or even making friends when we move house, job or college. Jesus is the answer to our fear. In one of John's epistles, the same author as this gospel we have been looking at today, he wrote, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And that's 1 John 4:18, first part of it. That's what knowing Jesus does for you. The more you know him, the more you realize he loves you. The more you realize he loves you, the less you have to be afraid of, until eventually the only fear left is the fear of the Lord, which Solomon said in, in Proverbs is actually the beginning of wisdom. Fearing the Lord doesn't mean being terrified by him. It means respecting him for his power and authority, being in awe of him for what he can do and has done, and being at peace because he holds you in his hand in his love, mercy and grace. The disciples weren't there yet. They were in the locked room again. This time Thomas is with them. And again, Jesus comes into the room, probably not through the door, because John goes to the effort of telling us that the doors were locked again, and he stands in the middle of them. And again, he wishes them peace. He knew about their fear. He knew about Thomas's doubts, and he was there to do something about them. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace. He brings shalom to us. We can have that peace. The Bible says it's the peace that surpasses all understanding. It isn't based on our circumstances or what's going on around us or what day kind of day we're having. It's based on his grace and his love for us. Then in verse 27, Jesus invites Thomas to actually touch his wounds. He tells him to place his finger here, see his hands and to take his hand and place it on Jesus' side. 
The point isn't because Thomas is into seeing scars and scabs like little boys who want to see an injury and want to show it off to everyone. That's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not why Jesus allows Thomas to touch his wounds. He even says it as he's talking to Thomas. He tells him not to disbelieve, but to believe. When we doubt, when we have fears, I know Jesus is standing there telling us not to doubt, not to fear, but to come to him, to find comfort, to find love, find mercy, grace, answers, and help. That process, the process of us coming to Jesus, and he's taking away our doubts and fears and replacing them with his power, his love, his grace, his hope. That's called sanctification or discipleship. The purpose for us is for us to recognize who he is, recognize who we are in him, and then live out of that reality. The Bible doesn't tell us if Thomas actually did physically reach out and touch Jesus, but what it does tell us is that he believed. We see it in verse 28, where he says, my Lord and my God, that's discipleship. One of the Calvary Limerick cores is that we're going to be a disciple-making church. That's a goal of ours as we run to Limerick with the gospel, that we don't neglect encouraging and helping one another on our own walks with the Lord. The best way to do that, of course, is to point one another to the Lord, to bring one another to the Lord in prayer and care for one another, showing Christ practically in practical ways. Jesus is our greatest example and we can see here that in order to disciple this apostle he was willing to be a bit uncomfortable himself in order to reach Thomas where he was. That's our example to follow. That's what a servant leader is. When Thomas saw Jesus with his own eyes, when he saw and maybe even touched the Lord's wounds, then he knew. He got it. He believed. Being a church, being people that know God, That's another of our Calvary Limerick cores. The motto of the church, which I learned running community groups in Calvary Cork, and we even renamed them to this Latin phrase for a while, is Coram Deo. That means living together before the face of God. It's about knowing God and knowing one another. Thomas knew Jesus as God. I hope that's a foundational truth of your life as well. So, (coughs) excuse me, what do you learn about Jesus? in this short passage of the Bible. I was thinking about this and came up with eight different things. First, Jesus is alive. That was true when the disciples and Thomas were meeting him in a locked room in Jerusalem, and that's still true today. Second, Jesus is powerful. He's alive after being dead. He can come into locked rooms by some means other than having the door unlocked for him. Third, he is loving. He appears to the disciples because he loves them. He comes back when Thomas isn't there to see Thomas because he loves Thomas. Jesus would have come back for you too because he loves you. He's in control. We see how he orchestrated events in his life that a normal person would have no control over. He knew he'd die. He knew he'd rise. He knew what he is sending his disciples out to do when he breathes the spirit on them. And he's in control today too of all aspects of our lives and elements of our lives. And he's working them all out for our good. Fifth, he gifts the Holy Spirit. That is still true today. The Spirit comes to dwell in us, to allow us access to God on a very intimate and personal level and to access the grace of God for our changed lives. The Bible says that the Spirit is like a down payment of salvation. 
we have the spirit so we'll be in heaven one day and on the new earth some other one day as well sixth he is physical this is important because jesus needed to be a man to be our savior we were talking about that in our communion service last time and seventh he is outward looking some people say that the great commission was like an add-on to jesus's ministry that had the Jews accepted him as Messiah, he would have gone straight to the millennial reign of Christ. But they didn't and so Jesus came up with this idea of Gentiles being part of the church. But that's not true. Jesus was always outward looking. We see it here, we see it from God the Father in the promise made to Abraham that his seed, which is Jesus, would be a blessing to all nations. As he is outward looking, looking to bring in more and more people into the church, so we should be. Eighth, he is the Prince of Peace. He is constantly wishing peace to his disciples and his presence brings a sense of peace, of wholeness, of completeness. And that is a reality that we can have too. So I just want to read the last three verses for you again as we close. They don't need much comment. We can take heart that they are written to us, readers, studiers of John's Gospel. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John chapter 20, verses 29 to 31. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for Easter. We thank you for the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And we thank you for what it means today. Lord, I pray that as we go about our Easter Sundays and our Easter weeks, Lord, that you would be constantly bringing yourself to mind, that you would give us opportunities to rely on your grace, to face our doubts and fears and bring them to your throne, Lord, and hand them off to you and receive your love, mercy, and kindness instead, God. Lord, we just thank you for your empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. And we thank you that you care for Limerick as well. And Lord, we pray for the courage to be people who just run to our city with your gospel and then people who are grace-focused as a community as well, that we would care for and love one another. In Jesus' name we pray.